When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I'm going to do something absolutely unprecedented today. Ooh, what's that? I am going to make us have an on-topic conversation in the sorting chat. Oh my god. Incredible. Because I want to talk about time travel narratives. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I want you to tell me about what your favorite time travel narrative is. Oh my gosh. This is a hard one for me to answer because I love and consume so many time travel narratives without really realizing how much of this genre I <laughs> I consume. So I think that my answer is Doctor Who, but my sort of sub answer mm-hmm. is Planet of the Apes. Oh. Yeah. I really love parodies. Mm-hmm. And so I love the Planet of the Apes. They're all so awful, but the first one is my favorite. But I really love the Simpsons parody of the Planet <laughs> of the Isaiah, Apes where Dr. it's Isaiah. Yeah, it's a musical. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Great. Great. So that's that's my that's my answer. How about you, Hannah? So I have a lot of favorite time travel narratives and I particularly you know as a child I loved the genre of like girl is unexpectedly Mm -hmm. sent back in time to the 19th century and has to learn to churn butter love those I was also obsessed as a child with like going to upper Canada village Mm -hmm. which was a 19th century (laughs) theme park outside of Ottawa where you would go and like see people milling flour to make bread and get berated by the school teacher for not being in long skirts. 
And then I, you know, I continued to like really like romance novels that had a time travel component where like a sassy modern lady goes back in time and falls in love with a medieval knight. But she's like, what? I'm modern and understand feminism. <laughs> and I, I have come to understand over time that there is a kind of insidious, conservative, sort of white supremacist logic in a lot of those narratives, right? Like these kinds of fantasies of simpler times, quote unquote. I have grown to be very suspicious of people who long for simpler times because <laughs> that usually means something horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but as an adult reader, I have found many other time travel narratives that satisfy my interest in the genre while doing things that are more interesting and radical with them. And my favorite example of that right now that I have read twice already and will read again because it's a very short book and so beautiful is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone, which is this gorgeous time travel love story that is between two spies who are on the opposite sides of a time war. Mm -hmm. It's a collaboratively written book. I'm fairly certain how they did it is like each author wrote one of the voices. It's definitely a queer love story. <laughs> and it's an epistolary novel. So it's a series of notes that they have left for each other, but they leave the notes throughout time. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful way that the novel uses time travel as a way to think about the boundaries that stand in between the possibilities of love and what people will do to move through those boundaries. And it's such a gorgeous book. And like all of my favorite kinds of time travel narratives, it makes absolutely zero effort to explain time travel logically. <laughs> there's no attempt. There's no pretending. Nobody cares. It's like, listen. The time spies move on. <laughs> well, I'm way behind on mm, everything, <laughs> but at least I have this time turner to give me a little extra time for revision where we take a look backwards and do a sneak peek forwards, metaphorically traveling through time to revisit the podcast's past and catch a glimpse of its future. There are a few time threads we want to pull on as we turn to the topic of time travel. One is certainly genre and the way genre shapes our expectations of particular narratives and sets us up to be uh, surprised by the subversions of those expectations. So when we talked about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, for example, we talked about the genre expectations of the Gothic and how the novel both aligns with and subverts them, which is to say how it was either goth or nah <laughs> so funny still. <laughs> if we wind our time turners way back, we'll remember that in the first episode of our reboot, we talked about the conventions of chosen one narratives and how the whole Harry Potter series fits within those conventions. And of course, the ideologies that underpin the whole idea of a chosen one in the first place. 
Mm-hmm. So similarly, in this episode, we'll be talking about a genre, specifically time travel narratives, and about the way that it structures stories and the ideologies that underpin its conventions. And then we'll look at some specific scenes in this book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, that we might want to unpack a little further in light of this sort of thinking about time travel. But before we get to that, I have a question for you, Marcel. Ooh, what is it? I want to know what you think about the treatment of time travel in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Specifically, I want to know if it makes sense to you. (laughs) I love this question. This book and the way that time travel functions in this novel is a source of ongoing contention in my relationship because it makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. I totally get it. And it's really the sort of style of time travel narrative that my brain feels most comfortable with. And my partner hates it. He cannot accept it because when is the beginning? Like, when does it start? (laughs) Whereas for me, I'm like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Like, the only reason that you could do it is because you already did it, of course. And he's like, what? But... (laughs) But who did it first? I'm like, oh, Trevor, there is time is a social construct. So you you like, you know, the sort of crux of time travel in the story. You know, we see Hermione using the time turner throughout to take extra classes, which monstrous. But yes, it's just a a bonkers use of a super powerful <laughs> magic and rare magical item like just oh yeah really just really bananas but that whole thing is a sort of lead up to the crux of the narrative which is that they can go back Hermione and Harry can go back and save Sirius and save mm-hmm. Buckbeak and that you know this whole thing where like Harry can cast a full Patronus because he has already seen himself cast a full Patronus. So he knows he's able to cast a full Patronus. But so like, it, it's exactly this sort of <laughs> circle of like, he has always already done it. So it was always already possible. Exactly. Yeah. So that makes more sense to you. Yes. Why? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't <laughs> I don't totally know, but I think like when it comes to things like time travel and parallel universes and like alternate timelines and that kind of thing, the kind of causal loop that we have in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, like the storytelling convention itself feels easier for me to comprehend. So like there are some people who say that like this is the only acceptable form of time travel narrative and and I'm not interested in those kinds of arguments. I think like different readers desire and appreciate different types of stories and for whatever reason the kind of tidiness of the story, the sort of like no loose ends left behind kind of nature of this time travel loop, I find it really satisfying and maybe more believable. (laughs) Like, more realistic, if you will, in this children's magical detective fiction land. (laughs) I mean, truly, is there anything more realistic than magical time travel being used exclusively to increase people's capacity for labor? (laughs) 
Oh, indeed. If we had time travel, it would be used only to make working class people work multiple days of labor within single days. I guarantee it. Like, it would be the most exploitative practice. It would be awful. But what about you, Hannah? Does this form of time travel make sense to you? Absolutely zero. Zero cents. <laughs> zero cents. It's wild, hot nonsense. Um, <laughs> but there has to have been a version of the timeline where he didn't successfully cast the Patrona. Like, there has to. I don't. Mm. <laughs> I think my taste in time travel narratives is like this is how you lose the time war. I like them to make zero sense. Mm-hmm. I find it frustrating. This is why I'm not a big fan of things like Looper, mm-hmm. because I find when a narrative really bends over backwards to try to make time travel make sense, I'm like, don't be silly. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. So don't. So just mm, sh- stop it. Just let it. Just let it be a thing that you use to then do other interesting things. Mm-hmm. And when it tries to make sense, I'm like, sh- no. <laughs> but that whole idea of like, do we think time travel should make sense or not is kind of at the heart of like how, you know theorists of the genre talk about Mm -hmm. the idea of time travel narratives are they orderly and about like things being sort of controllable and comprehensible or are they about like just chaos and like the deconstruction of time as we think of it and like the shattering of our conventional logics that's an interesting question i mean what is the point of time travel narratives if not to like fundamentally mess with and play with the idea of like causality mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is where for me this book gets into this question between time travel and then the predictability of the future mm-hmm. right because this is a book about going back in time and changing things and it is also a book about predicting the future and whether or not the future is changeable, mm-hmm. which is something I don't think I had quite realized before this read through is the degree to which it's sort of playing with the idea of fate prediction, what we can control and what we can't control. Mm-hmm. Do you want to get into some time travel theory? Yes, I really do. Let's do it. Still think time is real and not just a social construct? Well, prepare to have your minds blown in today's Transfiguration class, the segment where we learn a whole new set of skills to look at things we take for granted, like time. (gasps) As with our episode on the Gothic, we're going to be looking at Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban through the lens of its engagement with a particular genre, in this case, the genre of the time travel narrative. To understand how the tropes and ideologies and generic expectations of time travel narratives are shaping this novel, we first need to understand a bit more about, you know, the history of time travel narratives themselves. So let's start with a wee history lesson. So throughout history, there have been narratives that play with the passing of time, that imagine the future, and that tell stories about the past. Most critics mark H.G. Wells's 
1895 novel, The Time Machine, as the starting point for what is now our current understanding of time travel and its role in fiction. So, in part, the function of early time travel narratives was to explore how new technologies were impacting and transforming humanity. This is also a sort of fundamental premise of early science fiction, or scientific romance, as it was called, and thus why time travel genres and science fiction genres have been so closely aligned in our cultural history. But they are distinct, Mm. which is why it's sort of funny to see a series like Outlander categorized as science fiction when it doesn't follow any other SF conventions except time travel. It's a historical romance that happens to have this sort of mystical time travel component in it. It's not like hard sci-fi. No, it's not even a soft sci-fi. There's like no science in it except for like <laughs> modern medicine, which gets transported back. It's yeah. Really very much. That's sort of it. <laughs> yeah. So I think like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is similar. It's not a science fiction novel because the time travel is explained by magic and doesn't really deal with science. Although, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about how magic is muggle science. Nope, the other way around. That science is muggle magic. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yep. Got that straight. Mm -hmm. Super clear. So Mm -hmm. H.G. Wells, right? Sort of starts off the genre of like the time travel sci-fi narrative. So H.G. Wells was writing at the turn of the 20th century, in the thick of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of modernity, and like a lot of other writers of the period, was grappling with how the whole idea of what it means to be human might be changing, right? There's all of these new technologies, there's all of these new social formations, like The previous agrarian lifestyle is disappearing. People are moving into cities. Things are being automated that used to be done by people. It's like, what will it even mean to be human in the future if technology continues to transform at this rate? And this is in 1895. Yeah. It's just some wild imaginings from that time and some like amazing predictions. Mm -hmm. but. In general, you know, imagining the future was a way of playing out these ideas about how technology might be changing what it means to be human. But time travel is arguably about more than just anxiety about the future and modernity and new technologies. Mm -hmm. It's also an opportunity to think about human agency and our power or lack thereof to intervene into these sort of larger historical arcs of both human and natural history. So time travel narratives often ask, does every single tiny action we take have rippling and unknowable consequences, (gasps) right? The like step on a butterfly in the past, kill your grandfather in the future? (gasps) Or are we totally powerless to change the past or the future, no matter how hard we may try? Is it completely inevitable? Mm. Mm. So there are understandably a lot of different ways that critics and scholars have written and talked about time travel narratives. Some focus on what time travel teaches us about dominant narratives about the past, while others theorize what these narratives say about the nature of time itself. 
Um, For the purposes of our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, though, we're going to focus on the question of agency. What does this novel have to say about human control over the past and the future, and what does it say about the relationship between free will and fate? Yeah, right? It's that whole, you know, Trelawney predicting the future versus Hermione and Harry going back and changing things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how much is controllable? How much is inevitable? So time travel narratives have a ton to tell us about ideas of human agency. When we look at iconic early time travel narratives like the time machine, something really important stands out. The fact that the protagonists are basically always straight, white, educated, able-bodied men. Mm-hmm. These are the capital A actors of history. They remain quite popular today, too. <laughs> How dare you? Popular with whom? A la Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, yes. Great point. It took until like a year ago to possibly imagine a time traveler as not a straight, white, educated, able-bodied man. Because, right, the straight, white, educated, able-bodied cis man is the sort of universalizable subject whose ability or inability to intervene into historical events can, like, ostensibly tell us something true about the nature of human agency in general. Mm -hmm. Which is why interventions into time travel narratives can be really interesting interventions into thinking about like agency and humanity and and history. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the most significant example of this is Octavia Butler's 1979 novel Kindred, written almost 100 years after The Time Machine. She gives us a sense of, you know, the longevity of playing with these narratives. So Kindred resists the universal ideas of time, history, and agency that we see in these sort of early examples. So for those who are not familiar, Kindred is a story about a Black woman living in 1970s America who keeps getting involuntarily sent back to the 1800s. And it is specifically sort of intervening into how the idea of like time as changeable or history as transformable or as something we can intervene into is really different when we think about it through the experiences of a Black woman. So scholar Lisa Yazek describes Kindred as, quote, a kind of memory machine that answers seemingly impossible questions by using science fiction devices to represent African-American women's histories, end quote. So those impossible questions belong, Yazek writes, to those who find themselves, quote, not simply on the wrong side of history, but trapped and maimed by a history stranger and crueler than they have been taught to imagine, end quote. So there's a really different thinking about history and our inheritance of history and the ongoing life of history in the present that is happening through a novel like this. Genres like science fiction and fantasy, including things like time travel narratives, have only recently become what we might call acceptable subjects for literary scholars. Before the early 2000s, it was actually relatively unusual for a quote-unquote serious scholar to study things like popular culture. And even today, it Remains a little bit fringe. One of the things that I noticed when I was preparing for this episode was how much of the scholarly theory about time travel as a genre was unreadably dense. 
Yes. I could not get through it. I could not simplify it. I could not understand what these people were talking about. Because it's all about like ontology and time. It's like, what are the ontological implications of multiple simultaneous timelines? And I was like, oh, I don't care about that. I want to know what it tells us about like race and class and gender. What does it mean if individuality is mutable because of the extensive and simultaneous presence and so on and just (laughs) glaze over and fall asleep? Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that this is a kind of defensive side effect of scholars trying to prove that popular culture and things like time travel is serious, but it is nevertheless annoying and I don't like it. I find that it is often the case with popular culture that the best and generally clearest writing on the subject and like the genre and the tropes is found online and written by fandoms. (laughs) Tends to be my experience. Hannah found a great Gizmodo article written by Charlie Jane Anders called, quote, Why Time Travel Stories Should Be Messy that really helpfully breaks down time travel narratives into the following four categories. So category number one, you can travel back, but you can't change anything. And so these are stories like Outlander, where it turns out to be impossible to change the arc of historical events, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, sorry, spoiler for Outlander, if people haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, if you're just starting. Doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> Okay, category number two, you can travel back, but you always did. This is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Harry is able to cast his Patronus because he always already did it. This category has a few different scholarly or technical names, including the predestination paradox, causal loop, which is my favorite, and closed loop. Mm -hmm. Which is a good name. I think that really sort of points towards what you find satisfying about this version, Mm -hmm. right? Ties the thread, closes the loop. Yes, precisely. Number three, you can change the past and you will instantly feel the alteration. Back to the Future, classic example. I think we can call this retrocausality or reverse causality or backward causation. Incredible. Yeah. But basically the idea here is that time is static and the future exists simultaneously with the present. Mm. Which I find cool, but I can't I can't comprehend it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is cool, right? It's this idea mm-hmm. that like what's happening in the past is happening simultaneous to the present. And so when you change the past, you change the present in the same moment. Precisely. And then we have category number four. Which is you can change the past, but you'll just create a brand new timeline. And so this is often called the grandfather paradox. Mm. This is the idea that if you go back in time and kill your own grandfather before your parents' conception, you will still be here, but you've created a parallel universe where you will no longer exist. And this is a very popular device on Doctor Who and, delightfully, community. Mm-hmm darkest timeline. The whole idea of the darkest timeline suggests that you make choices that create different timelines. Absolutely. So in the article, Anders is arguing, you know, for messy time travel narratives. And she argues that the first two categories are less narratively interesting than the latter two. So she writes, and that brings me to the crux of why predestination of all types, including in time travel stories, 
is less interesting than an unholy mess. It's <laughs> interesting to watch someone attempt to thwart their destiny and fail, as the story of Oedipus, among others, proves. It's far less interesting to watch people attempt to fulfill a preordained set of events, end quote. So, burn on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, because <laughs> that's exactly what they're doing. But... I think that thinking about narratives like Kindred offers a challenge to this idea. Depending on what we think time travel is doing, maybe lack of agency can be more interesting than the ability to change things in messy and unpredictable ways. And, you know, I think while, at least for me, my sort of default thinking is like the idea of the past is unchangeable and inevitable feels more conservative. It always feels more radical to imagine that things are changeable. But we can also interpret that idea, the past is unchangeable, as a kind of powerful evocation of the way history lives on in the present, rather than being sharply divided off from us, which immediately makes me think about Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake, which argues essentially that the history, it uses sort of the image of, of the wake as both the wake behind a ship and also a wake as like an act of mourning right? Sort of sort of standing over a dead body. She uses the idea of the wake to think about the way that the history of the transatlantic slave trade is a present lived reality in the lives of Black people in North America. So I think, you know, that there's something powerful about thinking about the past as something you can go back to and experience and navigate and that can actually be pulled into the present, but not as something that you can change. Mm -hmm. There is something that's a little bit colonial about the idea that you could just go to the past and redo it. Yeah. I mean, you could make the same argument about going to the future, right? That like thinking of the future as a kind of like empty space that you can do anything you want to is such a powerfully colonial idea. These fantasies of endless agency through time are often white male fantasies. Yeah. I think that there's lots of really interesting tensions in our questions about agency and lack of agency and that the default of saying like the claim that things are unchangeable is more conservative. I think we can apply a little pressure to that idea and say like, not always. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I think to understand exactly what Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is doing with the idea of time travel, we need to take a closer look at some specific scenes and ideas. Um, so let's do that. Okay. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To be honest, I didn't actually prepare for this episode at all because I assumed I could just take my time turner and turn it uh, 72 times and get the last three days back. Oops, I don't have a time turner. Well, there's no changing the present. 
It's time for owls. The segment where we put our learning into practice. And I love you've already put into practice the creation of a time paradox because at the beginning of revision, you claimed you did have a time turner. (laughs) So, you know, grandfather paradox, you've killed your own bit. I totally have. You've created a new timeline and I love Mm -hmm. it. It's it's incredibly messy. It's not neat and tidy. I don't like it at all, but I'm doing it because I am a chaos Muppet. (laughs) Yes, you are. So, Hannah, you have picked out a handful of things from the book for us to talk about. And I I love these. I have nothing to add. I'm excited to have our conversations about these sections. Wonderful. So I basically pulled out sort of like three questions that I think the text invites us to think about. And the first one for me is, is time a finite resource that you can magically increase? Mm. The idea of time being a thing that you can have enough of or not enough of and that you can use magic to expand like you might use magic to like multiply the number of cats you have, as we've said in previous (gasps) episodes, seems to be at the heart of the, the thinking around time in this book. So early on, when Ron notices that Hermione's schedule doesn't make any sense. He explicitly says there isn't enough time for everything Hermione is doing in the book italicizes time. Just to give you a little hint. Just a textual wink. Like, but there isn't enough time. Wink. Like, But it is just this idea, right? It's a thing that you have enough of or you don't have enough of. And Hermione is somehow getting more than everybody else. And that idea of like the enoughness of time comes back when Dumbledore tells Harry and Hermione to use the time turner to save Sirius. And the passage reads, what we need, said Dumbledore slowly, and his light blue eyes moved from Harry to Hermione, is more time. Also italicized. (laughs) Just in case you didn't get it. Just in case we didn't get it. Time. Wink. (laughs) Oh my goodness. What does this do with our sense of time if we think of it as something that like you could hypothetically always have more of it and the more you have of it, the more things you can do? Like it just becomes an endlessly expandable resource, like wealth. So I totally agree that this is how the novel establishes time. Mm -hmm. That's not really the way that I understand time. I'm very annoying. I keep insisting that time is a social construct and it doesn't actually exist. You know, we have calendars and things to sort of mark out the passage of time, but like it's so phenomenally relative like how quickly things go, how slowly things go, even something like how long it takes to make a cup of tea. Like sometimes I'll be like, oh my God, I forgot to set the timer. Has it been five minutes or 10? I have no idea. And then there are other times when I do set the timer and I'm like, oh my God, the tea. And then I go and there's still three and a half minutes left. And like, how is it even possible that a minute felt like 10? So I have a deep skepticism in the fixedness, <laughs> if that's a word, fixedness of time. 
but I'm really interested in the ways that the capitalist system organizes time in this way to organize people's behavior. Mm. And so as as we said earlier on in this episode, the fact that Hermione is able to increase time in order to be more productive, I don't even know what to say about it. As you were talking about that sort of the capitalist fixation of time, that immediately made me think about how the Industrial Revolution, which is also where time travel narratives, a particular thread of time travel narratives comes from, is also where the sort of modern structuring of time comes from, right? A sort of move from attention to natural rhythms. You do this at sunrise, you do this at noon, you do this at sundown, you do this when it gets cold, you do this when it gets hot, to the fixation of the day into standardizable units that then need to be globalizable, right? Because the Industrial Revolution is going hand in hand with like the spread of colonialism and the expansion of empires and the globalization of structures of order and management. And the idea of like the hour and the day and the week and the month as these things that are shared are capitalist tools that are about like ordering and structuring time and turning time into units of productivity. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly the logic of time that is at work in this book. We even know that these structures of time as units of productivity are flawed because we have to do things like change the clocks twice a year (laughs) or add a day every four like (laughs) like cancel everything we're spending the rest of this podcast talking about how absolutely ludicrous daylight savings is we have these lived irritants that throw (laughs) off everything about time as a sort of orderable and measurable tool we also know that like hours also mean nothing when the sun is setting at 3 p.m because you live super far north like it yeah and you feel that like you i think you feel that in your bones when you are a person who works you know an eight or nine or ten hour work day and it's the middle of the winter and you're like oh, I wish I could go outside while the sun is still up, but I'm not allowed to because it is work hours. And so for four to six months out of the year, I endure a life of total darkness because capitalism has said that I work nine to five and the sun is only up within that scope of time. And so no light for me. Truly, capitalism is a dystopian nightmare. Ah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've got another question. All right. And that question is, in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, is the past changeable or not? So it's important that they not be seen. That's the rule that's emphatically repeated by Dumbledore that Hermione insists is at the heart of time travel, right? You can't. Let yourself see yourself. I mean, you have written into the script that I have to say kind of, so I'll say kind of, but he does literally see himself. So 
did he change the past by seeing himself thus breaking time somehow? Or is the past inevitable and faded? Hmm. Like, did he gain more agency and power through gaining knowledge that should have been secret? Like, it should have been impossible. Like, he's not supposed to have seen himself. And so he broke the rule. And so something that should have been impossible became possible because he gained forbidden knowledge (laughs) of the future. Or was it always going to happen whether he knew or or not, Marcel? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So for me, what makes sense to me is that you can't change the past. The past is what happened. And so in the initial timeline of the narrative, we don't see any of the things that need to be quote unquote changed. Like, we don't see the Dementors perform the kiss on Sirius in the tower, and we don't see the Executioner execute Buckbeak. We hear things, sort of like I had mentioned earlier, that kind of would give us the impression that things have gone one way or another. And Dumbledore, who I think one of our listeners pointed out is probably drunk at this point because he's been drinking brandy with Hagrid. So Dumbledore is probably a little tipsy. And Dumbledore knows that Buckbeak escapes. Yes, Dumbledore knows Buckbeak gets away and Harry and Hermione don't yet. That's right. Yes. So he doesn't tell them straight out, you have to rescue Buckbeak because I just saw you do it. What he does is he gives them enough information that they put the puzzle together on their own. And whether he could just tell them or not, I don't know. It's the whole Horcrux thing. Like, like, could he just tell Harry what a fucking Horcrux is? I don't know. But whatever. Dumbledore makes choices and that's his prerogative as, <laughs> you know, the godlike figure that he gets to be. But my ultimate point about the book is that they don't actually change the past. Everything that they do when they travel back in time is consistent with the initial timeline. And so it's true that Harry does see himself, but he doesn't know that he's looking at himself. He doesn't know who he's seeing. And he thinks in some weird way that it could be his father and it's something he can't explain. But it's only when he's in and as his future self that he has the realization that, oh, it was me. And so in that sense, I would argue that it avoids the problems of a paradox. To me, it makes sense because it works in the same way that all of the other unknowns sort of come to resolution in the novel. I think what feels like the difference for me in that one moment is that before he can cast the Patronus, he has to realize that that was him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. He has to figure out, oh, that wasn't my father. It was me. It was me who cast. Right. And I think that's the only moment where he like explicitly realizes that he has already done something and it becomes possible for him to cast a spell that he was physically incapable of previously. Not incapable, but just less skilled at. Fair. Yes. 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 It's not that he's suddenly casting a spell that he doesn't know. 
He does know it and he has been practicing it. It just becomes powerful. So you could argue that it's powered by the happiness of realizing that he will have done it successfully. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> turns out, turns out the secret to magic is confidence. I mean, I think this is pretty consistent. This is why Neville is so bad at so many kinds of magic is because people are mean to him and he lacks confidence. And that's why Harry's such a good teacher in book five. He gives his students confidence. It's true. It's true. And maybe that understanding that you have to give students confidence comes from this transformative moment where he realizes that he was capable of something all along and all he needed was to believe that he was capable of it. Yeah. You know, like the Wizard of Oz. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. One last question. I have one last question. And, you know, it's going to bring us back to our age old <laughs> debate over the accuracy of Trelawney's <laughs> predictions. But my final question is Are things predestined? Because Trelawney's predictions are mocked, but they often seem self fulfilling. But I think the narrative is quite unclear about whether they are real predictions or predictions that come true because she made them and so people are looking for them and so they become self-fulfilling you know marcel you'll have a bad day on saturday like is that a self-fulfilling prophecy because once i told you you'll have a bad day you'll be worried about having a bad day and it will make the day bad like you know so are they self-fulfilling like that or are they real and then she makes this major prophecy, which is established. It's one of only two that she's made. And we don't know yet in this book what the other one is. But her major prophecy 100% comes true. And while they could use time travel to change some stuff, they cannot use time travel to change that major prophecy, right? Wormtail still gets away. So are some things malleable and others locked? Is fate? inevitable or do we reproduce it by believing it's inevitable ah yeah that one's tricky so often when i tell people of the type of time travel that makes sense to me people will accuse me of being a sort of predestination kind of thinker like oh so you think that we have no free will everything we do has been predetermined and i don't think that that's true I think that like the concepts of things like free will and fate are maybe not quite as coherent as we would like them to be. Like in the Doctor Who narrative, there are fixed points. So there are things that you cannot change and then there are things that you can. And I, I don't totally buy that either. I think um, <sighs> my question really is sort of what is the logic that the text is operating under what what arguments is the narrative making it seems to me to ultimately see fate as relatively structured and relatively fixed that there is sort of these fixed points these these predictions happen and they're going to happen but they maybe don't happen in the way that we expect they will like some things are inevitable but there is space for individual human agency within those larger structures that feel unchangeable, right? So like this prophecy happened and it's going to come true. Wormtail is going to get away. Voldemort's going to rise again. But 
you can save this hippogriff. You know, you can save this life. You can get Sirius away. Sirius is, spoiler alert, still going to die. But he's not going to die today, right? Buckbeak's not going to die today. The general prophecy that somebody needs to die for Voldemort to be stopped is accurate, but not necessarily accurate on the terms that people expect. I think that the novel relies a lot on adherence to social convention in order to make these kinds of prophecies fulfillable. Because like Dumbledore reminds Hermione that there are laws. He's like, you know the laws. You can't be seen. Hermione, our agent of morality, our moral compass of the novel, prevents Harry from intervening at every opportunity that he has. Like, what would have happened if Harry had been like, fuck you, Hermione, and like ran out and (laughs) and gone gone rogue, rogue, you know? Like what like like it would have been a hot mess, an unholy mess, as Anders puts it. And I think like the novel doesn't make those things impossible. It doesn't make breaking those laws impossible. It just relies on the like the disciplining of the body to abide by the rules of society. <laughs> and so I think it's it's that that makes these things seem inevitable, I guess. And like, would Pettigrew have gotten away even if Harry like went rogue and ran out there? Maybe, you know, because even if he had caught him that night, that's only one day. And the future is long. <laughs> I love that reading. That like what we are seeing is not the inevitability of time or fate or prophecy. It's how we establish conventions around what we imagine to be changeable and what we imagine to be unchangeable. That we tell ourselves stories about what's inevitable and what is not. And that when we imagine things to be inevitable, they become inevitable. And when we imagine things to be changeable, they become Mm -hmm. changeable. So self-fulfilling prophecies? (laughs) It is. You know, it's like Trelawney's self-fulfilling prophecies, right? You're looking for bad news on a particular day. You're going to get bad news on that day. She saw herself joining them for Christmas dinner. She saw saw herself (laughs) assigning crystal balls on the final exam. (laughs) So literally self-fulfilling prophecies. But, you know, that's interesting to think in terms of these larger questions of agency and history, you know, is humanity inevitably corrupt and inevitably leaning towards the accumulation of power by a small number of people to harm, enslave, exploit the masses? Or if we refuse to accept that inevitability, does it become possible to imagine otherwise? Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 15 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you are into the podcast, 
please let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your lovely usernames, which only sometimes you use to troll me. Thanks to It's Waylon, Arad B, Lee D87, Magsley Merp, Bucket Hat Willow, Elis, Wireless, Elis, underscore Elis underscore, Lena Willie Grace, HN Forsen, and Trente. Those were manageable this time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash oh please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. We are going to be adding a new <gasps> tier. Oh my gosh. Coming up. So... Perhaps if you haven't joined yet, there might be new exciting opportunities that will tempt you. Incentives. <laughs> <laughs> On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with a whole new focus. But until then, later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.